All right, welcome back to the Lindjot Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with Black and Gold Hockey Productions under Mark Allred Jr. We always appreciate them hosting our podcast and our show. Today, you're here with co-host father and son uh, duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. We have another coach here on the show, and this guy hustles more than anybody in hockey today. So, Andrew, give us the lead in. Yeah, so today we're excited to have with us uh, special guest Spiros Anastas today. So Spiros played D3 collegiate hockey with the Lebanon Valley College and served as team captain all four years. And instead of taking his talents to the ice, he took his uh, talents and services behind the bench, serving many roles in different organizations since 2009, most notably such as uh, head coach and director of hockey operations for uh, different ECHL clubs, assistant coach in the NWHL recently, and uh, even this year just served as a scout for the Manitoba Moose in the AHL. He has a very long resume. I know our intros can be a little lengthy because we like to give background of whoever we're interviewing, but we want to save everything for Spiros today to talk to us. So we'll welcome our special guest today, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, a little bit tired from some travel, but uh, good to sit down and, and, and talk some hockey and talk uh, just kind of the coaching career. But uh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. I know off, off, uh, air, and I'm sure you'll mention it later, you, you just got back from a lot of traveling, so we appreciate you taking the time today, but I wanted to start back from the beginning. Um, I know that we obviously just mentioned you're at Lebanon Valley College, and uh, I know that you, you were captain all four years. That is correct, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's uh, something that's not quite common, but uh, I came in with a freshman class of about 16 to 18 players. It was kind of an overhaul on the roster, so I was fortunate to to get tasked with a leadership role pretty pretty early. So yeah, it was all four years in my uh, collegiate career. Yeah, and so and I forgot to mention too in the intro, but uh, after you had graduated from college, you immediately jumped into coaching at Lebanon Valley as I believe an assistant coach. So kind of a two part question: What made you go right into coaching versus trying to play pro hockey? And what made you stay at your alma mater for the next two years as well? Yeah, so there's a lot of different answers to that question. Actually, uh, if you look a little closer to my bio, I actually started coaching before I graduated. Uh, in my my senior year, I had a season-ending injury at right at Christmas time, and then before we came back for the second semester, our our head coach actually was uh, let go. So the assistant coach got named interim and. They knew that I was done for the season, so they asked if I wanted to spend the rest of the year on the bench. So that was the 2009-2010 season, and that was my senior year, actually. So I almost uh, got into coaching just by circumstance and necessity for the program. I had been a captain for four years, so it was a natural fit. And um, I had no intention of being a coach at that point in my career. I think I had thought about it, but... I had done a couple of internships in finance. I did an internship with the NHL PA certified agency. So a lot of things were in the air as a young 24 year old at the time. Uh, so that's kind of how I got my start. Uh, and that's how I naturally kind of spilled over into staying at my alma mater in terms of playing after I kind of had, had accumulated a couple of injuries and, and truthfully, I don't want to be part of that club that says that, you know, I blew up my knee or I blew up my shoulder and that's why I didn't make it. I didn't make it because I just wasn't good enough. So um, I wasn't going to kick around in, you know, the Southern Pro League or, or the Central League, which still existed at the time. Um, I just kind of wanted to get on with my life, whether it was in finance or business or 
eventually in coaching. So that's kind of how, how it all came about. Yeah, and so after leaving Lebanon, you really began your journey of venturing out and really hustling. And the only other person we've seen with a resume like this was Casey Fracken, if any of our listeners remember us having him on there. But I really um, implore you guys to look at Spiros's uh, resume because we could sit here all day and talk about each position and each team that he's been with. But um, I do want to talk about a few years, few years after Lebanon, you did quickly, you skyrocketed right to the AHL eventually with an assistant coaching job with the Grand Rapids Griffins. How the hell did you go from D3 coaching college all the way up to assistant coach in AHL in that short of time? Yeah, so, I mean, my, uh, my resume and my elite prospects profile gets uh, brought up quite often. And, and amongst some of my, my friends in the game, sometimes it's a little bit joked about. And it might, it might look cool, but uh, it's not always very glorious. That's a lot of moves. Uh, and, you know, it was, I was fortunate early in my career. I had a really quick trajectory, upward trajectory, but at times that was also a little bit of a curse um, because it got me to places that maybe I wasn't always ready for. Um, but basically uh, in, during my time as an NCAA division three assistant coach uh, every year, there's a, um, a college coaches convention in Naples, Florida. So I go to that and basically it's just a big networking opportunity. And some people take really good advantage of it and some people don't. Uh, it's a really tough situation to be in, especially as a young guy, you're very vulnerable. Um, a lot of times you're, you're nervous because there's a lot of big time coaches there and legends there. You know, you're talking about the Jack Parkers and the Jerry Yorks and at the time Red Berenson. So you get to learn and speak to these people, hear them present. But really the value in that is getting an opportunity to, to confront them face to face. And a lot of times you get snubbed and a lot of times you get ignored or forgotten about, but you hope that you make a connection with one person. So uh, that year, Jeff Blaschel had just finished his first year at Western Michigan and uh, he did an, an amazing job taking a kind of a bottom feeder program and making them a, a contender kind of overnight. So he was kind of like the hot man on campus there and, uh, you know, it was my goal to try and meet somebody like him. I'd heard him present and I, I really liked his philosophy and his, his ability to speak and connect with people. So I kind of just timed it at one of these events uh, that I kind of run into him and, and kind of by accident on purpose ran into him and, and asked him if he wanted to share a beer and just chat for a little while and um, just asked him how I can ascend to the division one level and, and what I need to do. And he kind of shared his journey when he started around the same age as me, about 24 years old. And uh, we just got going from there. And before you know it, after two, three weeks, he was looking for a third assistant for Western Michigan. Um, thankfully, I, I drove, drove out there. I, I interviewed well. I got the job. Um, but then a few weeks after that, he gets called upon by the Detroit Red Wings, and he's named an assistant coach with the Red Wings. And, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate that Andy Murray came in. I got to work with a great staff there with Andy Murray. Pat Fershweiler, Rob Facca, we had a good year. We won a CCHA championship. But then the following year, Jeff Blashill, uh, within the Red Wings organization, gets named head coach of the Grand Rapids Griffins. And traditionally, the Griffins always operated with one assistant. So um, they started the year with one assistant, but then a month in, uh, Blash realized he couldn't accomplish what he wanted to with just a one-man one support system. Uh, so he got the organization to agree upon on a second assistant. And fortunate for me that you're looking at Halloween, November 1st time, a month into the season, not a lot of coaches available. And I was somebody who interviewed really well with him. We had kept in touch. Um, you know, we, we 
built a relationship. So I kind of was put into a whirlwind there and I ended up getting that job. So I joined the Grand Rapids Griffins a month into the 2012-2013 uh, season. And uh, that's how I got there. And probably a little too soon for a 27-year-old. Um, you know, my head was spinning. So it was kind of, you know, trial by fire there. You know, just learn as you go. But it was um, a really good experience. I was fortunate that that's how I got my start. Was it at that time that you said, hey, maybe this teaching thing, I need to give a try? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Again, I was really fortunate to have a lot of good mentors early. Uh, you know, I think after a year and a half at Lebanon Valley College, it was still uncertain of where this would lead me. And it's funny how your, your goals and your dreams change as you go on. Like when I was there, all I ever wanted to be was a Division three head coach eventually. You know, it's a good life, build a program, live in a nice kind of affordable town. Uh, and just be part of a small community that can really make an impact on people. But then you get an opportunity to sniff out the division one level and work for somebody like Andy Murray, that's been to the mountaintop and back uh, all over the world, at the NHL. And then you start thinking like, okay, well, this is going to require a lot more work and a lot more detail. And then you get thrown into the American league and you see what it's about, the relationships that you need to build, the detail, the knowledge that you need to have and at the speed that it, it operates at, and at that point, that's definitely where I was like, well, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And this is where I want to pursue. Um, and for a lot of people, it turn people off because you see the work that needs to be put in. And you look at a guy like Jeff Blaschel that works tirelessly. Um, but for me, that just made me want to be like him and, 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 you know, mold myself into my own kind of coach. So that definitely was a, a deciding factor for me. What were some of the more difficult transitions you had to make from collegiate uh, teaching a collegiate level to the American league. I, well, I think the biggest thing is you don't have as much time at, at the pro level as you do in, in college, you know, both in division three and, and division one, most of your games are Friday, Saturday. So it's a practice league. Uh, so you get a lot of time for development, a lot more time for video, a lot more time to really kind of boil down and break down certain skills and kind of, game like situations because you have really four days to prepare for the weekend and you can look ahead to your opponent and really get to know them uh, through watching their most recent games and you can play them twice so you have an opportunity to adapt and respond to things that you might face in adversity that you might have to deal with where in pro you're you're playing sometimes three four five games in eight nights and it could be three or four different opponents in that span and you're looking at two or three practices maybe over two weeks as the season goes on, like you're, you're, you're clicking at 20 to 30 minutes. So it, you have to be a lot more efficient, a lot more detailed, a lot more concise. Uh, so that was the biggest adjustment for me going to pro, but personally, just as somebody standing on a bench, it was being able to think the game faster. And you always hear that about players when they ascend to the pro ranks or when they ascend from ECHL to AHL or AHL to NHL, but it, 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 it's true, uh, the same for coaches too, uh, especially me, guy starting at 24 and by the time I'm 27 in the American League, you know, I got Blash and Jim Pack, you know, chirping in my ear to want to know about line matches and who's coming next for the other team and what they're running. And my head is just spinning because the speed is just a level. So I had to catch up to that speed too and be able to make the game faster. So uh, it's true for coaches too, not just players. So that was the biggest adjustment as a young coach getting into pro yeah, and so from 2014 to 2018, this is where your 
to me still, man, the insane grind of, of yours really began. And uh, you're at the head coach of University of uh, Lethbridge while maintaining other positions, I assume, probably throughout the summer. And over the years, even this year, you worked with different U18 teams such as Canada, South Korea, Estonia, and even this year you worked with Serbia. How do you get linked up with those international jobs, I guess? And is it almost an unwritten rule in coaching that that's a good way to, I hate to say pad your resume, but you know, you're starting to see that more often that maybe you're being more active just full year round. Is that just something necessary? Is it just what, yeah. what, what is all that about? Cause you never take yeah, a break. I, I think, I think, uh, you know, that does stand out when people look at kind of my path. Uh, so I got, you know, hockey is a who, you know, business, um, without a doubt, you know, you'd be lying if you didn't say that uh, connections and people that you, you know, well, uh, help you get along. But I believe that it's a who you impress business, right? You have to know the people, but you have to do good work for them. You have to be trusted by them. And, uh, you know, I was really fortunate to build a really good relationship with, with Jim Pack, who uh, is a great mentor, great person. We were, we were assistant coaches together for two years in Grand Rapids. So when I left for Lethbridge, um, was the same offseason that he left to become the full-time head coach and director of, of hockey for the Korean national programs. There was four, they were four years out from hosting the Olympics. They wanted to build up their program. So they brought Jimmy in who had years of American league experience, the NHL and Stanley cup experience as a player. So he, um, he, at my wedding actually is when he brought the news to me that he was also leaving Grand Rapids and he was going to join the Korean national program. And he kind of asked me, what's, what's the CIS schedule like? What's Canadian university like? And I said to him, Hey, I'm, I'm taking over a rebuilding program, but if you win the whole thing in Canadian university, like national championship, you're done second week of March. And it's a real short season. You, you play 36 games total. You make play, make it to the nationals. Um, and that's when you're done. And for me, I just came out of the American League where we had two deep playoff runs, one a Calder Cup win, and then another uh, we lost in the playoffs to the eventual Calder Cup champions the following year. So you're going into June. So it was a real adjustment for me. So he wanted to um, dedicate my springs and summers to helping him with the Korean national program. So that's how I got named uh, the head coach of the U18 team in Korea and uh, eventually assistant coach with him with the world championships. And, and originally I was supposed to kind of see that through to the Olympics. Um, but my wife and I started having a family and being gone 10 to 12 weeks at a time was, was really difficult for us. So I, I kind of bowed out after two years, but through those championships, you meet so many delegates from different countries, Estonia, Netherlands, um, Poland, all these different countries that we competed against. So when the word got out that I was no longer with Korea, Estonia was kind of looking for a stopgap coach because their, their coach who coaches all national programs uh, is a full-time position, but they were really looking to hire somebody new. So they wanted a part-time guy for a year. So they reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested. They promised that I'd never be gone for more than 10 to 14 days at a time. So it made sense. And that's how I got linked up there. So for me, you know, you have such a short season as a Canadian university head coach, and you have these opportunities to expand your horizons, learn more, work with different cultures and different hockey backgrounds, I also did provincial work with Team Alberta at the U16. Well, those guys were, you look at those rosters, uh, half those guys are NHL players right now, or at least high NHL draft picks. Uh, to get those opportunities to learn through Hockey Canada and Hockey Alberta. That's what always drove me. And uh, a lot of coaches don't do it. A lot of coaches take the break and they just focus on their full-time job. I believed in myself that I could do both. 
so that's why I kind of did. I love the game. I love helping it grow. I love growing within myself. And I just feed off that stuff. So to me, it wasn't extra work. It was learning, professional development. And, you know, I have a few disadvantages in the game. Uh, I don't have a, you know, a big hockey pedigree. I'm a, I'm a son of immigrants from a country that is not, uh, you know, known for hockey at all. Um, I didn't play at the highest levels. And, um, you know, I, I just, I, I have a lot going against me at times. So for me, the more I can build myself up and more I can learn, um, I always jump to any opportunity and nothing's beneath me. So that's kind of how I've, I've kind of taken the game head on. And that's how I got involved at the international level and uh, meeting people around the world. It, it always brings up new opportunities. So that's kind of how I've, I've gotten involved with these different countries. So I was going to ask just a, you know, boilerplate question maybe about like, what was your favorite team internationally? But I'm going to change that and just say, can you give us sort of an insider, maybe a funny or interesting story relating to uh, international play, either with a team that you coached or uh, another team? Yeah, I mean, the international stuff definitely uh, breeds some interesting experience. I've had amazing experiences with all three different countries that I've worked with in IIHF competition. I did work with Canada a little bit, U17 developments and uh, with the World University Games, but those other countries were real eye-opening experiences. So so Korea was interesting. The pros all kind of spoke some form of English, but the U18s didn't, not a word of English. So it was really neat, uh, you know, and I always consider that was one of the best jobs I did because the favorites to win gold at, the, at their respective championship, and we did. Uh, really neat to see over training camp us develop a hockey language where I, I needed a translator through the first week but by the time we got into weeks two and three didn't need him anymore because the the, the boys just really understood what I was trying to convey because we were talking a language we had developed ourselves and I picked you know picked up some words with Korean just a little did uh, half Korean half English and just the terminology that I use in terms of breakouts and structures they really picked up on it. So it was a really cool experience to see that develop and grow uh, and to win that tournament. And then, you know, they like to throw their coaches in the air after, you know, winning tournaments. So it was really cool to change their perspective of how the game is played and to accomplish that with them. But one funny story from that is the second year with the U18s, we were playing Hungary and it was a real big game. They were the favorites. Uh, we wanted to compete. We wanted to do our best. We were playing at a higher higher level that they've ever been at before because we got promoted the year before. And I tried to make kind of a pun or, you know, uh, a joke during our pregame meeting saying we got to be hungry for hungry. But that, <laughs> that doesn't translate the same way in Korean, <laughs> right? So I, I realized after I said it, like, these guys have no clue what I was just trying to say. And I'm trying to giggle it off. And they're looking at me like, what is this guy talking about? So you know, that's just lost in translation there. So, you know, that's an interesting uh, little story. Estonia is really funny because it, it's a it's a country with with a long history and um, a tough history of identity. Uh, you know, a former Soviet state, but they're in a situation where are they Baltic? Are they Nordic? Are they Scandinavian? So you have a lot of cultures within one country. So when I went over there, I took it as just a coach trying to find great matches for lines. But you got guys that identify as Russians. You got guys that identify as Finnish or true Estonians. Guys that identify as Baltics. So it was really interesting to go there. And I, I try and build, you know, lines based on guys that be uh, complementary to each other. But 
quite quickly, I, I found out like, hey, you can't play uh, Puzakov with Jurgen Mortens because you know, Russians don't play with the Finnish style guys. And it was interesting to see that because now that's a different challenge as a coach. Um, so I uh, kind of had to battle, battle through that challenge and, and to see the inner work of, of politics and history within a country like that, that's been through a lot. And then, um, you know, my most recent experience, Serbia, it was probably the most I ever felt at home in a different uh, culture because uh, obviously I come from a Greek Orthodox background and the Serbians and Greeks consider themselves, you know, brothers in faith and brothers in culture. So, uh, you know, I kind of, it was a real easy uh, situation to fit into there. And we shared a lot of the same, same culture, same food. So it was an excellent experience. I just felt like I was around family there. So three really different experiences, but uh but awesome and, and really made me a better person and coach. So fast yes, so. forward to 2018-19, you get your first gig as a head coach in the ECHL um, with South Carolina Stingrays. And Andrew and I are actually from Tulsa. I don't think we told you that, but we're from Tulsa. So uh, we're big ECHL Tulsa Orla fans. We go to all the games. So we're kind of tied into the ECHL, have a lot of uh, uh, coaches and players that we've had on the show. Bring us through uh, when you first heard that, you know, you're going to sign a contract to be head coach in South Carolina. Yeah, so it was pretty late in the offseason. Uh, Ryan Warsawski, the previous head coach to me, uh, did a fantastic job, and he got a lot of the American League attention. I wasn't sure if he'd return or not. So in August, he got an assistant job with the Charlotte Checkers, who were the Hurricanes affiliate at the time. And, uh, you know, South Carolina was kind of really in a jam to find a coach. And for 25 years, what they normally did was just promote the assistant. It's, it's all they've ever done. But there was new ownership for the first time in that 25-year history. And the new owner kind of wanted to do something different. So I kind of – I was the first ever coach, aside from the inaugural coach, Rick Vive, to be uh, hired without being an assistant there first uh, from outside the organization. I was really excited. It was a whirlwind situation. I had to leave literally like the next day to get there because I was already behind the eight ball in the ECHL. You really get an early start on recruiting. And we were in August and, you know, there wasn't a lot signed and, and there wasn't available. So I left my wife, my poor wife, to kind of orchestrate the move from Lethbridge, Alberta, uh, and get our stuff to Toronto first and then from Toronto down to South Carolina with two, two kids, um, under three at the time so that you know she's just an all-star and she always has been and she managed that all herself went to South Carolina and I was really excited great place great organization great affiliation with the Washington Capitals and Hershey Bears um, but truthfully without getting into too much detail it was the best coaching job I ever did uh, with the roster that I had and was able to put together um, we finished in third place and made the playoffs um, you know, we had a, a pretty good season, but we faced some adversity and some challenges. Um, but it was probably the worst 10 months of my, my coach. Uh, you know, sometimes you just run into situations that don't fit. You run into personalities that you don't click with. And it was a real stressful, real tough job to deal with. Um, and it didn't work out. Uh, I was the youngest coach in the league. We were tops of the league in special teams in a lot of statistical categories. Again, I, like I mentioned, we finished in third in our division made the playoffs. We got ousted in the first round and three days later I was let go from the position and uh, it was a tough pill to swallow. Uh, I enjoyed my time there. Great community, great families, uh, 
obviously a beautiful place to live. Uh, but it just didn't work out. And, uh, you know, it, it was inevitable in your coaching career. It's going to happen, but I didn't expect it to happen with success. But a lot of my colleagues and my friends said, hey, it's way better to get fired as a, as a playoff coach um, than a coach that finishes dead last. And it, and it turned out to be true. I, I got a, a new job pretty quickly after that. But I was just excited to be a pro head coach and to get that venture started. And uh, it's led me to where I am today. And I'm, I'm thankful for that experience, whether it was a tough one or not. But beautiful, beautiful place to live. Um, my family enjoyed our time there. Yeah. And so uh, that following season, you said that you ended up getting uh, uh, quickly another job. You end up getting the head coach job, the Branson Bees, for the next two seasons, I believe. Now, the question I want to ask is, and most people may not know if they're not heavily tied in the ECHL, but, you know, you look at, you know, your head coach, look at the resume, you're also director of hockey operations. You know, these head coaches make the roster moves and everything as well. Does that GM work, per se, does that ever cut into your coaching time? Is it hard to split up the time of, okay, I need to really focus on roster building. I really need to focus now on practice. I can only imagine that that's very, very tough to manage. Yeah, it, it does. And I think for me, I've always said, and maybe I'm a little bit biased because I've, I've stood in both positions, but the two hardest coaching jobs in hockey are Canadian University and the ECHL. Um, and I spent a lot of time in both. So for seven consecutive years, I was pretty much faced with a lot of the same challenges and wearing a lot of hats because in Canadian university, you're all alone. You don't have full-time assistant coaches. At least not a lot of programs do. And you're pretty much a GM. The only difference between uh, the CIS and the ECHL is the academic component. So for sure. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of going on the fly, like your roster changes. You're from morning skate to game time uh, in the ECHL. So you're kind of, you're really focusing a lot, working with housing, working with, um, with travel, uh, you know, meals, uh, salary cap, uh, acquisitions. So for me, uh, the way I kind of alleviated that pressure was trying to build a really good team and doing a lot of due diligence early and uh, making sure that I had a group that I know, knew I could work with and not have to tinker with too much through the season. Uh, you know, my year in Brampton, the, the 2018-19-20 season, um, we had only three transactions, not including uh, call-ups and reassignments. We only had three transactions the entire season. Uh, I made two plays and I, and, I, uh, and I waved one guy so he can go to school. Um, and I was really proud of that because that alleviated a lot of the pressure and a lot of the headache of always being on the phone. And that's really atypical for the ECHL. Like you're talking, a lot of teams will have 100 plus transactions in terms of trades, waiver wire um, and stuff like that. And, and for me, uh, I really thought I got to do more due diligence in the offseason of a good team. And, it, and, and in turn, that was a real good recruiting tool for me because in the offseason when I was looking for new players, I'd tell them to go to the transaction page from the year before and see that we were the lowest in the league. And, and that meant that I, I gave my guys time and a lot of development. We, we believed in the guys we recruited. But still, even so, uh, when you get call-up, your American League contracted guys overnight, you got to find guys, you got to find substitutions, you got to manage the cap. So, you know, there's a lot of times this season where coaching is 25 or less percent uh, of your job. And you just got to stretch yourself a little bit and, and do a lot of video and, uh, and hope that you have a good support staff. And I was really fortunate in Brampton to have an amazing assistant coach in, um, in Duncan Dalmeo, who is now a head coach in the ECHL recently named to the Indy Fuel. 
Um, so, you know, when you got that support system, you really got to lean on people. You got to trust them and you got to delegate because you have a thousand other things going on. So yeah, there's times that you forget that you're a coach in the ECHL for sure. And I have a lot of respect, um, for that position and the guys that do it and guys that have done it for a long time. Like you talk about Tulsa, Rob Murray, it's like, he, he knows the back of his hand, right? So you learn a lot of tricks from some of those old guys in the league and they, they help a lot of us young guys along too. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, we hear, um, you know, just the rumors that it's sort of like, uh, you know, the coach, the coaches have daily emails that go out, you know, soliciting, hey, I'm looking for this, looking for that. And, uh, and we hear some of the uh, older coaches or tougher coaches like uh, Rob Murray or Martinson down in Allen. Uh, they may not treat the younger coaches uh, with love and affection the way they would the vets. Is there any, uh, any truth to those uh, stories? You know what? I, I think there is for some people, I, I never really experienced that. I, and I think it's a two way street, right? Like there's, there's a, there is a divide a little bit amongst uh, the point in life that some coaches are in the ECHL. There's a group of young guys that are really hungry and applying to every American league job that comes open or, or want to keep elevating. And there's a group of guys that have been through the ringer and, and are comfortable done a great job where they are and they've built a good life and have had a lot of success. And I think two-way street. So I, I never really dealt with any, like I had some hard conversation with conversations with Marty and Alan in terms of trade talk and stuff like that, but never anything disrespectful. And these are guys that I always showed respect to. And, and I think I always got it in return. And I think when you show people that you're willing to learn and you know, and respect where they've been, um, you don't get treated poorly in this game. You see the same people on the way up that you see on the way down. So you try and treat people uh, as well as possible. So I, I personally have never had that, those kinds of situations. Rob Murray, actually, he helped me big time in a jam uh, in that 1920 season. Uh, he had a contracted goaltender, Evan um, Fitzpatrick there. And uh, we had two goalies called up overnight and I needed a goalie. And, but I had, I was up against the cap. So, you know, if I could find a guy at 525 on a contract, uh, it would really help. And I know Rob was looking, he was kind of overloaded on goaltenders. And I think, Fitz needed a, a little change in scenery because things weren't going great in Tulsa. So I, I called Rob. I said, Rob, like, I, I need this guy. Do you want anything in return? He said, no, no. You know, let's talk to San Antonio and St. Louis. Let's get him over to Brampton. So, you know, I, I think with Rob, I, I had built a good relationship. I helped him in the past because when I was coaching a university, one of my captains had, had played for him in Alaska. So you build those relationships and you just show respect and you get in return. So I never experienced that. I have heard some of those stories, but, uh, you know, I looked up to those guys. I looked up to guys like Rob and, and Marty and, and Jacksonville because they can share a lot of wisdom. And one of the guys that I get along with the best is Jeff Pyle. He's been through it all, and I still talk to him to this day. So uh, for me, no, I, I've only had good, good stories with guys like that. Yeah, so I'm very curious. We've obviously gotten players' perspectives on this before, but especially as an ECHL coach, because like we were just talking about, you, you deal with trades and everything as well. How do you prepare to sit down a player and say, hey, we're moving you? Because, you know, this is obviously grown adults, families, even with you, like you were talking about earlier with your coaching jobs. Is it really difficult or, you know, did you find yourself at times looking at the trainer going, you're the one that's going to fire him today? Yeah, no, to, I think it is difficult to get, get rid of people. Um, you know, maybe some people look at it as a, as a weakness or flaw, but my philosophy is I do everything I can to keep people. Um, so that's why I talked about my transactions are always pretty low. 
Uh, even in South Carolina, I had more than I did in Brampton, but I, I had to overhaul the decor uh, leading up to playoffs. And we, we went on an 11, five and three run to finish the season to, to jump in the third place and, and secure our spot. But uh, I, they're always tough conversations. And I, I'm, I'm of the belief that once I coach somebody where they, whether they like me or not, cause you're not, not everyone's going to like you, but you're connected to me for the rest of your career. So, you know, I've, I've always just tried to be as transparent as possible. Let them know what our vision for our team is. Let them know what they did well for us and thank them for their time with us. Um, but ultimately give them some facts of why we had to go in a different direction. But I offer it up. Not everyone takes it. A lot of times it's a tough conversation or, you know, they, they straight up tell you to kind of kick rocks. Um, but a lot of times I offer up that I'm there to help no matter what, you know, and I've built good relationships with players after I've let them go or after I've released them or after I've cut them or traded them uh, because of that willingness to continue to help them. Um, you know, I had this defenseman, Mike Chen, who's playing for Reading right now, was having a, great, a pretty good season. Uh, I mean, they're playing game seven tonight. But we ultimately had to move on from him late in that season, South Carolina. But, you know, I had some contacts in China and I knew they were looking for North Americans with Chinese heritage. And the next day after I cut him, I, I got him hooked up with a KHL contract because that's that's how I treat people I believe in them we just had to move on for different reasons so you know maybe some presidents and GMs don't like that but uh, I believe in treating people well and, and it's it's worked for me because I've built some really good relationships so it's it's never easy to get rid of someone it's never easy not for me I coaches it might be but uh, I hate doing it but sometimes you just have to right to 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 build your program up to where it needs to be You still there, Dad? I know you wanted to ask a question next. All right, so we'll keep going on then. Maybe he's frozen up. So I want to go ahead and talk about the work that you did this year. This is the first year, I believe, that you're a scout, Manitoba Moose in the AHL. Um, and then you also did some work in uh, another country as well. So, oh, Serbia, that's correct. So can you kind of talk to us about – you kind of – took a break, I guess, from the bench boss stuff and working as a scout. What's been the transition with that in scouting now in your future? What is going to be, what, what kind of got you to scouting? Gig? Yeah. So basically scouting, uh, same way I kind of got into coaching. It was really substantial, uh, and kind of a move of necessity. Um, so I was with the Brampton Beast. I was with the Brampton Beast for two years, uh, but really I only got one ECHL season behind the bench with them. The second year, we were part of the 13 teams that opted out, and they were mostly the Northeastern teams, right? A lot, lot more mandates, a lot more restrictions. We were in Canada, so that was doubly bad for us because we couldn't cross the border. So we were part of the half the league that opted out for the 2021 season. I, I was still working with them. I was the director of hockey ops, so still recruiting office work. I'm very fortunate that they continue to pay me. So, you know, they, they did their best for, for us and, and their employees. Um, and during that time, I, I got a little experience in the women's game. Um, but yeah, and at the end of that uh, 2020 season, uh, when everybody had to give their intention and in coming back, um, Brampton ultimately decided it wasn't feasible for them anymore. I think our owners might have lost some money in their, their real business ventures and holding on to time or a toy like a lot of owners you know minor league professional teams uh it just wasn't feasible for them so ultimately Brampton folded and you know, you're in a situation now where 
Uh, and they did everything that they possibly could for us. You know, Carrie Kaplan was the president. Phil Fusco was a minority owner who I got to know really well. Like they, they treated me really well. Like they, they paid my benefits for as long as they could. And, uh, you know, my salary for as long as they could after they folded. And, you know, it was a, it was a tough situation, but it went as well as they possibly could. Uh, but now you're looking for a job and, you know, it's a real tough situation in coaching. Like we're, I think we're a fraternity that has some rivalries with each other, but at the end of the day, we, I believe that we want people to have success. And we want people to be fine because we feel for people when they're in tough situations, but now you're looking like, well, man, the only way I get a job is if people get fired ultimately. If there's jobs open in the American league and somebody gets promoted from the ECHL, that means somebody in the American league probably got fired. Or if there's a job open in the ECHL, that means probably someone got fired. So you, you're, you're not, but you're kind of hoping that these openings happen, but you don't want to wish any harm to anyone. Well, but half the teams just didn't play. So it would take a, it'd be a real shitty move to hire, to fire a coach that didn't get to coach because of COVID. Uh, so half those teams didn't play. And then the other half that did, it was a real year anyway. So you're going to move a coach for not having success in a really mess, messy situation. So there weren't that many jobs available. There was one or two that I did apply to an interview at the American League level and in the ECHL, but there just wasn't much there. So fortunately, I built a really good relationship with the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, Craig Heisinger, who's the assistant GM with the Jets and GM of the Moose, uh, someone that I really looked up to and was a good mentor of mine. And I'd sent him a few players who had, who had succeeded there, so I built some credibility. Uh, so as the summer went on and, and not a lot of things were available, um, not a lot of openings, uh, he eventually asked me if I'd be interested in scouting. And it was an opportunity for me to stay in the game, change my perspective, learn something new, work for a great organization, and uh, and not have to move. I didn't have to move my family. I was still based out of the Toronto, greater Toronto area. Um, and it was easy for my kids and my wife during a real tough two years for the whole world, right? Like, how, who am I to complain about, you know, I still get to work in hockey, just maybe not the job that I'm used to. Uh, when there's people suffering all around the world and actually losing jobs for different reasons, whether it's losing money or not being vaccinated and whoever, you know, who knows what. So uh, when that opportunity came up, I jumped on it and it was a transition for sure, but it's really opened my eyes to a lot of things. It was really good for my family. They've done so much for me, uh, life especially. So it was an opportunity for, for us to just kind of gain some stability and stay home. And we're from, Ontario and that was the exciting thing of taking the Brampton job when it came open is it was the first time our family could be close to you know my, my kids could be close to all their grandparents um, because they were born in Alberta and you know they'd never been that close uh, to our parents so so yeah that was ultimately the decision the deciding factor and I've loved it I've loved scouting for the Jets and the Moose and uh, you know one of my responsibilities covering the ECHL especially this year with COVID and taxi squads there was a lot of PTO opportunities with the Moose. Uh, you know, we I think we called up seven total guys through the year. Wow. So I got to really be in a league I was familiar with and reconnect with coaches and get to know them on a more personal level and watch a lot of ECHL hockey, a lot of buildings I hadn't gotten to go to yet as a coach in the league. Um, so I loved it. That was 50% of my time. And the Jets are a first-class organization, and Craig Meisner has been great for me. So – um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. And it, it really gave me a different perspective of the game. And it was a lot less stressful, truthfully. It was really good to reset in that sense and good for my mental health. And, uh, and again, because I make my own schedule, it opened up a new learning opportunity that I hadn't had for a few years to go and coach another IHF tournament with Serbia. So, 
so yeah, it was a great year. Unexpected because we didn't expect the world to, to turn upside down for two years, but you know, there's an opportunity in everything. So that's kind of bad today. Yeah, it's a spirit. I know that uh, we're running out of time here. We're, we're gracious of you coming on the show, but I know my father um, definitely had a question he wanted to ask. We talked a little bit off air. It'll be a two-part question. Um, so first, we want you to talk about uh, you're recently in Poland and you recently had the Poland-Ukraine tournament. So we kind of want to talk about that, especially now with the war going on in Ukraine, just how surreal all that experience was leading up to all that. And then what is your plans for this summer upcoming season are you allowed to tell us do you have anything lined up <laughs> hmm. uh yeah so i mean i'll answer the first question first uh it was an incredible experience going first to serbia and then to poland uh great people in serbia it was it, there were a lot of challenges uh we weren't sure if we were going to go there was they there's low vaccination rate in serbia in ukraine in poland a lot of that area is, is not you know you're looking at 50 percent max so ihf has some rules so we weren't sure with our vaccination rates if we we're going to go then seven of our guys got a one dose vaccination but that meant they still had to do quarantine in poland so i actually got one practice with the, the full team before the tournament so that was a lot of fun um, but the tournament itself obviously there was some underlying uh you know things going on with Ukraine having a team. They'd been in Poland for a month for training camp, but the month before that, a lot of those guys were, were fighting, fighting in a war uh, and defending their country. And a lot of those guys had families, wives, kids, parents, uh, siblings still in Ukraine during that tournament. So to see their result and to see them compete, um, it was really inspiring. Uh, we were their first game uh, and that was, uh, it was Kind of surreal to watch their, their compete level and the level of play. And then the second game they played against Poland. Obviously, Poland's really close to the situation. There's a lot of Ukrainian refugees there. Uh, so they they were Ukrainians in attendance. So it was really special to kind of be able to take that in as a spectator and watch that game and that unity. Um, you know, it was just really special to see people to come together. And that's what sport's all about. You know, th there was there's always some underlying tension. You know, there's countries... Serbia obviously recognizes Ukraine as a, as a sovereign country and rights to their land and has condemned the Russian attack and has voted against them in all, you know, UN and European Council things. And I'm not here to talk politics, but they haven't sanctioned Russia. And there's always, you know, for whatever reason, um, there's tensions because of that. But it was cool to just see when it came to hockey, the athletes come together and support each other and hug each other and uh you know, just compete against each other and, and just really show a lot of respect because then all of a sudden you, you just start to think like some of those unnecessary tensions probably actually mean nothing when it comes to the actual people who are living. Uh, you know, so it was, it was just really great to see. And I got to chat with the Ukrainian coach a little bit and just kind of send him, you know, my love and my thoughts because I knew what they were going through and I knew what they were going back to and they won a bronze medal. So amazing for them. So, uh, it was really cool to see the support and unity and that's what hockey and sports should be about. Awesome. And then yeah, the second question, are you able to tell us maybe what your plans are this upcoming season or summer? Uh, you know what? I've really enjoyed my time with the Jets organization. I was just there this weekend. Um, you know, they're great people. They're first class. And uh, you know, I am more than happy to return in the role that I'm, that I'm in. Um, but in saying that, I have a lot of support from, from Zinger uh, to just at least entertain some coaching opportunities. So there's obviously been some moves in the ECHL. 
Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the ECHL. Like I, I had a lot of success there as, as a young coach, youngest coach in the league during my two years there. But unfortunately the ECHL wasn't too kind to me. I, you know, I got fired and I got folded on and, and that's how volatile the league is. You know, it's minor league sports. And then we're not just talking ECHL hockey. That's how, you know, minor league baseball, minor league soccer, whatever it is, uh, is like. So I'm a little bit cautious, uh, but, but open to opportunities there. There might be some opportunities in the American league, or there might be opportunities within the Jets organization. But one thing's for sure. It's nice to know that I have a position that I'm happy with. I, I believe I've done good work with, and I get to work with an, a magnificent staff with the, with the moose. And uh, we'll see what happens with the jets here as they obviously have some decisions, but Craig Heisinger is, is an amazing guy and a great mentor. So, uh, so I'm very comfortable where I'm at right now, um, but I think I have some time to to look at opportunities. So I'm definitely entertaining, but I'm not I'm not chasing it. I chased it in the past for sure, and and that's sometimes what results in a crazy elite prospects profile like you. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean I'm in a different stage in my life. I just turned 37, and like I mentioned, my wife has been an incredible support. My two little guys, uh, James and Jordan, have been amazing, and they love the game and they love kind of watching dad do his thing. So, uh, you know, I, I owe it to them to, to, you know, put them in my decision-making process. And, um, and Lindsay, my wife has, has done a great job in her career and she's elevated over the last two years. So, uh, definitely a lot of factors that go into the decision, but, but we're happy. We're happy with where we're at. We like the scouting gig right now. So, um, I didn't really answer your question. So there's a lot of maybes, but, uh, but we're just very happy and fortunate to be in the game right now. Andrew, am I back? Yes. Yeah. We can hear you now. We heard you laugh. Yeah. So yeah, we look forward Spiros, to following your career and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be fun for us. And um, again, we kind of apologize for the sort of Mickey Mouseness with uh, recording today of not being in our studio, but um, we want to thank you for coming on and uh, you know, wherever you're at in the, in the future, uh, we'd love to have you come back on because I've, I've got some more, uh, coaching type questions, but that would take us over time and uh, we'll just save that for another time. But we'll pause this and say goodbye off air. But officially, we want to thank you for coming on and talking a little hockey and about your career. Yeah, man. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it, guys. And uh, if I had just a little quick parting statement uh, for any young guys, young coaches listening, and, and the young coaches reach out all the time. But you know, again, you mentioned it a couple of times that uh, my resume and my bio. And it's not always as glorious as it seems. So I had a mentor, Andy Murray, uh, warn me about mountain sickness uh, once in my career. And it's a very real thing. But be careful how quickly you move up the mountain because you got you to gotta acclimate yourself to the, the different altitudes and, and the air pressure. So uh, sometimes you can, you can move up too quickly. And, and that has happened to me. So uh, while it's been an incredible, uh, rewarding journey, um, enjoy where you're at and uh, do a good job where you're at. So for any young guys listening, um, but I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, bringing back some memories and, and getting a chance to speak with you. Really enjoyed being here. Okay, Andrew, great guy. And I'm telling you, you know, we talked to him off air and, and I don't know if I said it on air, but I think he's, uh, he's got a hell of a career ahead of him, uh, whether it be coaching or like you said, on the management side. Yeah, it's always good to get different perspectives. You know, we normally have a lot of players, former players on here. Um, whenever we do get a coach, assistant coach, scout of any kind in any professional leagues, we like to have them on here because you can obviously tell whether you're with a U18 team in 
South Korea or in the AHL or ECHL here in America. Um, all different experiences and obviously not as glorious as it seems, right? Um, but it's very cool just to hear that from a coaching perspective because we don't hear that too often. So I thought that he had some really good insight too. So I hope maybe some, uh, some young guys, some kids that are wanting to coach listen to this today and, and take some stuff that Spiro said because I think that he had some really good advice and his stories could probably ring well with some people. Absolutely. And his whole um, uh, discussion on networking and how he, how he got started um, definitely great for young guys and gals out there that uh, are looking to go into the coaching realm and may not know how to kind of start. And a lot of our former guests, you know, start with uh, volunteering uh, for the team. You know, remember Mark, I think it was Mark Strobel talking about how he started out and it was just basically doing a lot of uh, volunteer stuff until you get your first paying gig. But uh Anyway, we're going to leave it here, Andrew, and we look forward to uh, getting our next podcast out. And we want to thank uh, Black and Gold Productions again for all the distribution work they do with our podcast. And we wish everyone well. Yes. Have a great day, everybody.